Well, good morning. Before I get going, I wanted to let you know I got to speak to Dee uh, Erickson yesterday, and uh, she was just so touched that we would consider her and think of them, and after the email went out, um, just asking for you all to help come alongside, she sent a message to Elise just saying, brought tears to her eyes. She, they love this church, and they know they are loved, and so appreciate the uh, efforts that you are all making to serve those who are in need, appreciate all of the efforts that have been made to help serve the Kemp's during this time as well. So uh, just encourage you in, to excel still more uh, in, in that. So thank you so very much. As we were singing that last song, I was struck by one of the words where of rest, it's that longing for rest. You know, one of the reasons we come together on Sunday, even though we don't observe a Sabbath rest as it was in the Old Testament, is we still have this, this rest that we long for. And it's to remind us, and it was always to be a reminder, of the rest that is promised after sin is vanquished. And that's the rest that we long for. It's the rest that we hope for. It's the rest that we sing about this morning. It's the hope that we long for. So as we come together this morning, I hope you're able to, to find some rest as we sing, as we meditate, as we think upon our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. Well, we will continue this morning in our study that we've been doing since the beginning of the year on leadership, specifically leadership in the church. What does God expect of the leaders of his church? We've been looking at it as we've talked about through the through the lens of a shepherd, specifically focusing on that shepherding aspect of leadership that God calls for in his church. In 2015, and yes, I realize that was seven, eight years ago, that's about as good as my data is, but in 2015, Amazon offered somewhere just north of 57,000 books with leadership in the title or subtitle. And I think there were more that could have been added that didn't explicitly market themselves as leadership books or describe themselves as leadership books. And while that many already existed, that same year, leadership books were coming out at a rate of four a day, four new books on leadership every single day. If one were to try and read just the books that had previously been available, those 57,000 or so, if you could finish every one in just four hours, and if you read for eight hours every day, it would take you over 75 years to read just the books of eight that were marketed as leadership. If they've continued to be written at the same pace they were in 2015, that means there's 10,000 new ones to add to your reading list. It's a lot of books. I like to read, and that's a lot of books. There's been a lot of ink spilled over the topic of leadership. But why? Why has so much been written about leadership? Why are there so many books, so many conferences, so many seminars, so many studies on leadership? I think there's at least a couple of reasons. We recognize that leadership is a critically important topic. Just as there are thousands of books on parenting because raising that next generation is so critical, so important, we also recognize the importance of leadership and 
the impact it has, not just on the person leading, but on all of those in their sphere of influence, in that sphere of leadership. But more than just being important, there's also a great need. I mean, if leadership were easy, if even most persons were leading well, then there would not be a need for so many books and resources. But it is precisely because there is such a crisis of leadership that so many resources exist. And as we've highlighted in previous weeks, the crisis in leadership sadly is not isolated to the world. But it's found in our churches. It plagues churches just as much. From small to large, there is a desperate need to return to the biblical standard of leadership. And as we've noted, this biblical standard looks very different than what the world looks to or how the world would define a good leader. That's not to say there's no overlap, but we don't go to the world as our waymark or our guide for leadership in the church. Instead, where do we turn? We turn to Scripture, to the instructions God's given, to He's provided. And Scripture is replete with instructions towards leaders. While we've been spending most of our time in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, if you continue to scan the pages of the New Testament, you realize there are continual instructions and comments that are dropped about leaders. And it's for this reason we've spent the past five weeks looking at the standard of leadership provided in the New Testament. And we return to that topic this morning. Let's open in prayer as we continue to consider this important and crucial issue, not only for Canton Bible Church as we consider our current leaders, as we look to add new leaders, but for churches around this nation and around the world. Father, we come before you this morning recognizing the seriousness of this topic, the crucial importance of finding leaders and identifying leaders and putting in place leaders who honor you, who lead well according to your standard. Father, we pray first within our own sphere here at Canton Bible Church that those who lead your church would lead according to your standard. That the congregation would do their part in encouraging and holding accountable its leaders, in finding new leaders and identifying them according to the standard of your word that we would not grow lax in our expectations, complacent in what we expect, but we would always and continually hold forth the standard of your word. And Father, we pray that for the churches around us. Father, there are many churches struggling with this, and for some that may in the future struggle, that you would allow this instruction from your word to to be found, to be grasped hold of by these churches. They would turn from the standard established by the world around us and instead turn to the standard that is found here. We thank you that you have not left us in dark. You have not left us ignorant about such an important topic. In your name, amen. Well, you can turn to 1 Timothy 3, where we've been spending most of our time in the past few weeks. We're going to wrap up our study in 1 Timothy 3, really more of an overview of this 
of these standards of leaders there in verse 7. Around the elders, the pastors, the overseers, the same term applies to all of this one office of leadership in the church. And we're going to look at the final requirement Paul provides before turning our attention to the additional requirements we find to Titus. As he establishes elders throughout the churches on the island of Crete. Now we noted at the beginning of this study that these explicit requirements in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, they are not exhaustive. This is not an exhaustive list of everything a leader is to look like and do. In fact, it's the bare minimum. Any other instruction for God-honoring living in the New Testament applies to the leader as much, if not more so, than to everyone else as the leader is to set the example that is to be followed. The writer of Hebrews says, remember those who led you in Hebrews 13.7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. That's interesting, and I want to pause there for just a moment. And I realize you've got your Bible open to 1 Timothy 3, but just think about this for a moment. Considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. What are you to first look at when it comes to those who lead? It's their conduct. It's their behavior. It's their character. And what have we seen in 1 Timothy 3 and in the little bit that we've looked at Titus 1? What has been the overwhelming emphasis in these chapters? It's been conduct. It's been character. Now, there is certainly a teaching that must be taught. There is a doctrine to be held to. But the overwhelming emphasis, first and foremost, is on character. Because character becomes the test, the bellwether, the litmus for understanding whether what they have to say is true. Because if it hasn't made an impact in that leader's life, in that, in that life, or in that person's life, then it brings into question how real, how true it is. So character is of the utmost importance. And so we've laid out what is that character? What is the conduct that we are to observe and when we see it, then imitate not only the conduct, but then imitate their faith? Well, we've looked through 1 Timothy 3 and it probably bears repeating as we've gone a little bit slower. So we'll start in verse 1, and I'll just read this, and then we'll conclude with verse 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, again, overseer, elder, shepherd, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle. Peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of of the devil. It's that final quality, characteristic in verse 7 that we look at this morning. Having a good reputation with those outside, 
of the church is probably in italics in most of your Bibles because that's what's understood. It's those who are outside of the congregation, those who are in the world. Now, at first, that may seem a little odd. If we're talking about leaders in the church, what do we care what the world thinks, right? And haven't we heard that the world is going to hate those who love Christ? So do I really expect the world to have anything good to say? Well, the answer is yes. That is the expectation. I would put it another way. They must have good reputation among non-believers. My friend who is a lawyer, had, he also served as an elder. And when he was asked to be an elder, the very first thing he did is he went to his law firm and started asking around and telling persons, you know I'm a believer. I know you're not. But my church has asked me to be an elder. Is there any reason, any concern you have with my being an elder and a leader of my church. I love that he did that. I love that he went asking those questions. He wanted to make sure, and he took this very seriously, that outside the church, with the people that he regularly interacted with, that the standard, the quality, the character of his life was one that brought honor to God, honor to the church, and didn't call into question the very people to whom he's ministering. Paul writes several times to all believers about the necessity of good reputation with a watching and unbelieving world. It doesn't mean it's a nice world. It doesn't mean it's a world that is not hostile. It is all that. But we can still have and must have, and leaders absolutely must have, a good reputation with a hostile world. In Philippians, Paul says, in verse, chapter 2, verse 15, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Or Colossians, when you wrote to the church in Colossae in chapter 4, verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Or to the church in Thessaloniki in 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. Work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And earlier in 1 Timothy, he said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Titus, he says, remind them in Titus 3.1 to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And we'll get off Paul for a moment. Peter himself says this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. In the Jewish mind, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. There were insiders and outsiders. The Gentiles are the outsiders. Keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers, the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
In other words, there's no expectation that they're going to love you. They're still going to be evildoers. They're still going to slander you. But you're going to do right and silence these foolish men. This qualification really brings us full circle. If you look back at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 3, you note that we begin by being above reproach within the church. And here we end this list of qualifications, at least in 1 Timothy 3, by being approach, above reproach in the world at large. And I wonder how many churches take this seriously. Now, I'm not saying they should send out a private investigator to investigate the leader's relationship or the potential leader's relationship with every single person they have ever come in contact with. But do we pay attention to interactions and to relationships outside the church? I mean, do we even care about them? Sadly, I know of leaders who have very poor reputations with those outside the church. And if that were to happen here, for example, it is right to take the time to dig in further and even bring it to the leader or the potential leader's attention, gather a fuller perspective, certainly understand here their perspective, but make sure that it doesn't sit in darkness. Bring it to light. This helps to protect both the leader and the church. And it it takes effort and it gets uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, these type of interactions are not the, the fun ones to have. But it also protects the church. It protects the leader of the church. And far from being defensive, the humble leader should be encouraged that you care so much for the church, you would even do this. Now again, come in the right spirit. Come in gentleness, the same way you would want to be treated. Come questioning, not accusing. But take this seriously. How are they considered by those outside the church? Well, Paul ends there. He then moves into another office of the church, deacons, that we're not going to be spending time on in our current study. And so what I want us to do is, as we conclude 1 Timothy 3, turn our attention to Titus. Now, we've been looking at Titus. Titus is not new to us. We've made several references to Titus as we've worked through these list of qualifications where there's been nearly identical overlap in some of these qualifications, and that's no surprise. These are the same leaders. You would expect many of the same qualifications. But the fact that the lists of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 differ a little bit reinforce that these lists are not exhaustive. If Titus was exhaustive, then there would be nothing new in Timothy. If Timothy was exhaustive, there'd be nothing new in Titus. But both of them add to each other's list. Not only that, then we've got 1 Peter 5 where he talks about shepherding, not lording over. And so we start to see there's, again, this is the bare minimum. And as Titus was establishing the churches in Crete, Paul had left him there to put elders in place. And Paul gave him this list of instructions, and I'll read it briefly, on what he was to look for in leaders. For this reason, he says in verse 5 of chapter 1, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion... For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, 
but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. If you were comparing the list or flipping back and forth really fast between 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you would have noticed that there's seven, maybe even eight additional characteristics of a leader that we find in Titus that are not explicitly mentioned in 1 Timothy 3. And we're going to begin working through these additional qualities of a leader or shepherd as we look to wrap up our study on the church and her leaders over the next two weeks. The first one we come across is in verse 7 that we have not yet seen, at least not explicitly. It may have been implied, it may have been assumed in a couple of the things we saw in 1 Timothy 3, but here in verse 7 we see not self-willed. What does that mean? Well, if you've spent much time in the church, you've probably heard it noted that pride is one of the most dangerous and deceptive of sins that persons struggle with. The opposite of pride being humility, and maybe you've even heard it said, humility is one of those things that as soon as you realize you have it, you lose it. Well, this is particularly true for those in leadership. Someone may even start out without apparent ambition or pride. They may soon find themselves struggling with desires for control, especially one in leadership. They may begin to feel that they are above correction, that others are there to serve them and their desires. And it can happen so subtly and deceptively. You begin to get affirmed by others. They tell you, man, you're doing so well. We appreciate you so much. Which, by the way, don't stop doing those. Those are good things. But you begin to internalize those and think, well, maybe I am all that. And so someone who didn't start out with a lot of ambition or pride may find themselves struggling with these things. It's particularly true of someone who may have a great deal of theological training, who persons come to frequently for opinions or advice. They are in particular danger. I'm in particular danger. I want you to know that. I want you to know that I'm in danger of this so that you help protect me from this. And there's a great danger of becoming self-willed. It's the opposite of selfless. Instead of putting the wants and the needs of others before your own, you believe that your wants and your needs are more important. It may manifest itself in decision-making or may simply be an attitude that looks to be served rather than to serve others. Now for a leader, this doesn't mean setting aside biblical conviction or doctrine, but whenever it comes to matters of opinion or even matters where wisdom is applied, there must be an attitude of deference and submitting to one another in love. And all of those other qualities we've looked at, all, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is also one of the most practical arguments for what I believe is a biblical teaching concerning the plurality of elders. Elders need others to hold them in check. There should not be one head person. And though Canton Bible is young and does not have many elders yet, there is not the elder or the pastor. 
There are pastors and there are elders. It's one and the same. I'm just using the terms that are most common. And we hope there will be continual growing of shepherds, leaders of this church. There may be some who are more visible, but there is no hierarchy among the shepherds of the church. Rather, there is a sharing of roles and responsibilities, but a continual understanding that there is only one chief shepherd, and that is Jesus Christ. Everyone else is an under-shepherd. Every other leader. And all other under-shepherds are to serve and minister together in humility with one another, preferring the needs of the sheep and the needs of their fellow shepherds before their own. That's what it means to not be self-willed. I don't need my way. The coffee doesn't have to be my flavor of coffee. Color doesn't have to be my, painted my color. The Bible study curriculum doesn't even have to be my choice. The, the sermon series, the Sunday school lesson that we're going to go through, what book of the Bible we're going to study next. There can be discussion. There can be deference. There can be talks. There may be needs that I don't see or another elder doesn't see and with that collective wisdom comes to play, you bend to one another. That's how it should be in the relationship with the husband and the wife that we talked about last week. Well, there's another characteristic that we haven't looked at, at least not in any detail. It's also in verse 7, and it's not quick-tempered. We know that all believers are called to imitate God, perhaps the most common and frequently referenced verses with these instructions are Leviticus 19.2 and then 1 Peter 1 where it's, be holy as I am holy. That's what God says, be holy as I am holy. Imitate me in my holiness. Look like me. And it's elders and shepherds who are set apart as an example for the church of what this looks like. In other words, if I were to end today and say, go and be holy, that's pretty abstract, isn't it? What do I do? What does that look like? What's my next step? And we can certainly talk about instructions, and we want to do that. But in the grace of God, and the mercy of God, he's given leaders to the church who are to give a concrete representation of what that looks like. Yes, it's an imperfect one, but it begins to represent what does it look like to live rightly in this world. And one of God's attributes that we are to imitate is that he is slow to anger. In Psalm 86.15 we read, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. And so not quick-tempered is simply a reiteration of a character of God and one that is particularly important for leaders. Why, though? Why so important for leaders? Scripture actually has a lot to say on that. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. We've all seen that, right? Children, you've all seen this, right? When you're with friends or siblings, you know, if somebody gets angry, what happens? Everybody starts getting all upset. But when we're slow, we're not quick to anger we begin to see that that strife, that dispute calms. Proverbs 29, 22, an angry man stirs up strife. A hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. He abounds in sin. We've all seen that too, haven't we? How many times have our anger led to more sin? 
Solomon writing in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9, Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. And as James famously notes in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Elders and shepherds specifically are called upon to work toward achieving the righteousness of God in their own lives and in the lives of the church. And anger will burn up and destroy those efforts. Alexander Strauch notes in his book on biblical eldership, the fierce looks and harsh works of the quick-tempered man will tear people apart emotionally, leaving people sick and destroyed in spirit. And so it's a matter of controlling your anger. Almost everyone struggles with anger to some extent. Some very little, but it still will flash up. Some very much. But it's a matter of controlling your anger, or as Paul says in Ephesians, not letting the sun go down on your anger. In other words, putting it away quickly. Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China, one of the first missionaries to inland China, noted that his greatest temptation was to lose his temper over the laziness of those upon whom he depended. And he said, rightfully acknowledging, he said, it is no use to lose my temper. Only kindness. Only kindness. But oh, it is such a trial. And I appreciate that he acknowledges that it's a struggle. It is a difficulty at times. But it is absolutely necessary. Strauch later on comments on this passage saying the issue is whether or not an individual who aspires to pastoral eldership recognizes and controls his anger. If he isn't controlled, if he's a powder keg ready to go off in the midst, if he isn't controlled, then he is a powder keg ready to go off in the midst of the next problem. And as we've seen from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and James, what happens? Strife, dissension, and sin. This is incredibly important for a leader of the church to exemplify this character of God in being slow to anger. Well, now we skip down just a little bit further in verse 8. And we reach the next characteristic, not discussed in 1 Timothy 3, and that is loving what is good. Now, this is one of the most abstract of the qualifications for a shepherd and leader of the church. Some of them have been a little harder to understand, a little harder to wrap our heads around, or at least understand why it was in the list to begin with. But loving what is good, if I were to ask you, hey, lean over to the person next to you and explain to them what it means to love what is good, where would you start? The term Paul uses here is actually just one word in Greek for one who loves what is good. That's one word. And for those of you that are interested, it's philagathon. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament describes this word saying, according to the interpretation of the early church, it relates to the unwearying activity of love. It's putting love into action. Another biblical commentator notes, it is ready to do what is beneficial to others. And so we might say, 
Goodness will be observed in many different things, but at its root, it is looking to serve and meet the needs of others as they arise. And very practically in our church, we've got persons who are homebound right now, who are hurting. We know their needs. Do what is good. Demonstrate love. Put it into action. But there are many different ways that will be seen. And one of the things we learn here, we observe here in Paul's instruction to Titus, is that a leader above all else will be a servant. He will love to serve others. He will love to care for their needs, physical and spiritual, as they arise. Love is not an abstract idea. In our culture it is, but biblically it's not. Love is not an abstract idea. It's not a mushy feeling. Love is seen in action, in words. It's demonstrated by caring for others, offering words of encouragement, words of edification, words of protection. It's by deeds that serve and look for others. summed up by one pastor saying this quality demonstrates and shows a man who will be loving, generous, and kind toward all and will never sink to evil or retaliatory behavior. There's a lot more we could say about this characteristic. It really, it's purposely abstract. Now we need to put some concrete actions to it. We don't leave it in the abstract or we never do anything with it. But there are a lot of ways in which this could be applied. We could be here all morning and the rest of the day talking about ways this would apply, doing what is good. But at its heart is that what do you expect of your shepherds? What do you expect of your elders and your leaders? That they are servants who proactively identify needs and meet them, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, that they're looking to serve. Well, the next character Paul tells Titus for look, to look for in a future leader is just. There in verse 8, this is the term for righteous or upright. This is someone who lives according to God's righteous standard. You see them putting it into practice and continually working to conform their life to what God has instructed. This type of person, this type of leader is principled. They can be trusted to be guided by Scripture. They're careful, they're impartial, they're reliable when they make decisions for the church. In fact, James warns believers in James chapter 2 against acting unjustly or judging with impure motives. We read in verse 9 of that chapter, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgression. To show partiality, to act unjustly, is to sin and to stand under conviction by God. If you want an example of a just man, a righteous man, a good place to go if you want to do a character study on what this should look like in a leader is Job. Job opens in Job 1.1 saying, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. The man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning from evil. And from there, as you work through, there's a lot of tough stuff to work through, what happens to him, but as you look through and observe the character of his life, how he interacted and engaged with others, it sets a pattern, an expectation for what a just person looks like. 
And why is this type of person important? It's because elders are responsible for the decisions in the church, and there is need for them to act without partiality, without favoritism, without sinful motives. What are they guided by? As you spend time talking with leaders or potential leaders of the church, begin to ascertain and understand what is it that motivates them? How do they make decisions? How have they made decisions in the past? Is it guided by personal preference, personal desire, or is it by looking to the needs of others? Ask their wives, ask their children. Made decisions about work, about moving, about you name it. Did they take into consideration the needs of their family, their friends, and others? How do they act? How do they think? Are they selfish? We'll actually get down to that one specifically in a moment. This type of character quality, this justness with the decisions that will come before leaders in the church is crucially important. Paul's been rattling off characteristics in machine gun-like fashion here. He next throws in holy, or if you have the New American Standard, it says devout. This is one who is set apart to God. On the one hand, all believers are called saints or holy ones, but it's the leader of the church who must continually and consistently display this devotion to God, this set-apartedness in their life, in their decision-making, their character, their speech. If someone begins to look like the world around them or to take on worldly characteristics, habits, and patterns of life, then there should be concern, certainly for someone who calls himself believer and absolutely for one who is a leader of the church. Israel, when they were called out, you can go all the way back to Abram, when he was called out, there was a uniqueness. He was set apart. He was called out while it says he was still an idolater. And Israel is called out, and they are set apart, made very unique from the nations around them. In a similar way, Christians are called out. We are set apart from the world around us. We are to look very different than the world around us. And a leader and shepherd of the church especially must not look like the world. They must appear set apart. Not set apart from the church, but set apart from the world as an example for the church and for believers to follow. What does it look like to live as a believer in this world, as a stranger, as an alien in this world? And so as you consider your leaders, ask, are they holy? Are they set apart? Do they demonstrate this in their life? Are they more interested in looking like the world around them and participating in those things, or does their life, does their character, do their decisions demonstrate that they are set apart? And finally, this morning, we come to self-controlled. There's certainly some overlap here with prudent and temperate that we looked at in 1 Timothy 3, or slow to anger that we just looked at. Self-control certainly guides these qualities, but it goes further. The shepherd of God's people must be self-disciplined in every aspect of life. That seems like a lot, every aspect of life. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, describing the pattern and the example he sets. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. 
Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And saying it is only Solomon can, in Proverbs 25, 28 we read, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit, no self-control. An undisciplined man, a man without self-control, has little resistance to lust, to anger, to slothfulness, to a critical spirit, or any other desire. They are, to put it quite simply, easy prey for the devil. And self-control is a mark, then, of a life that is controlled by and walking by the Spirit. Paul actually says that explicitly in Galatians 5.23. Again, Alexander Strauch wisely notes that leaders who lack discipline, they frustrate their fellow workers as well as those who lead. Not only are they poor examples, but they cannot accomplish what needs to be done. Consequently, the flock is poorly managed and lacks adequate spiritual care. And so, when looking at potential leaders or even thinking about current leaders... It is wise to ask if they demonstrate a disciplined and self-controlled life. One of the most telling marks of self-control, by the way, is the ability to control the tongue, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. I mean, James notes this in James chapter 3. He goes so far as to say if anyone control the tongue perfectly, he is a perfect man. The tongue is one of, if not the most difficult areas to practice self-control. So look for leaders who are slow to speak, quick to listen, who guard their speech and their words. If they exhibit self-control over their speech and responses, they will likely, not with 100% certainty, but likely demonstrate self-control in other areas of life. And so self-control over speech becomes a helpful bellwether in identifying a disciplined, a just, a holy, a temperate, a prudent shepherd of the church. Still look for other areas. Make sure there's discipline in other areas. But if everything else seems in line, watch the speech. Watch how they talk. Watch how they respond. Watch what they say. Watch what they don't say. There's much more we could say, really, about every one of these characteristics. We're going to stop there. But we're not done. Next week, we'll look at the requirement of being able to teach, which we've already looked at. You may say, hang on a second, we already looked at this one. Yes, we did, but Paul does something. He makes a little turn here in Titus where he says, able to defend or refute those who contradict. And so we're going to look at it not only from the understanding, being able to accurately handle the word of truth, but being able to refute those who contradict. And then a few closing remarks on leaders in the church. But as we noted at the outset, with the exception of teaching, everything else we have observed this morning and over the past five weeks have revolved around the character of the man, the character of a leader. A pastor named Jack Hughes noted, a man must demonstrate a pattern of faithfulness 
in managing his home, parenting his children, having a good reputation at work, both inside and outside the church. He must be above reproach and have that Teflon character we've described so that no legitimate accusation of ungodliness or failure to do what elders must do can stick to him. And it doesn't mean that elders never sin. It doesn't mean they never blow it, that they never get carnal, but it refers to the pattern of a man's life. What is the man's life characterized by? As he goes on to say, we all have our bad moments. We don't want others to characterize us by our worst day in the year. But when the elder qualified man blows it, how does he respond? He repents. He confesses his sin quickly. He strives to do better. He is not defensive. And immediately takes responsibility for those bad moments and strives to do better to those areas that are the exceptions in life. We look for, in these leaders, the normal pattern, not the perfection of life. One of the other areas that is sorely lacking in leaders in the church is a demonstration of what it looks like to repent and to confess sin and to admit when you're wrong. There's this idea that because elders are to be above reproach that they never sin. Well, they do. And we know that conceptually But are we the type of church and the type of body and do we have the type of leaders who are willing when it's necessary to do it publicly, when it's necessary to do it to those within the church to ask for forgiveness, to confess sin? And are we quick to do that? There's a statement in Hosea, it's like people like priests. We don't have priests. But there's a reason that I think our churches struggle with repentance and confession of sin and growth and sanctification. I think it's because our leaders aren't setting an example in those areas either. So we're not looking for perfect pastors. We're not looking for completely sanctified shepherds. We want them as far as down the road as we can get them. But we want those who are setting the example, who are calling us to the standard of godliness and are demonstrating what it looks like to repent and grow even further when they do sin. But what about the rest of us? Are these characteristics something we should only expect of elders? As we remind ourselves each week, these qualities are to be exemplified in leaders so that we might follow them. Every one of us in this room is responsible and held to the same standard. We are all to be practicing these things, to be growing in these things. So ask yourself as you leave here today, yes, certainly, ask it of the leaders, expect it of the leaders, but how is your reputation with those outside the church? Maybe you need to go ask. It doesn't hurt to do that. Go ask some friends. Go ask some coworkers. Hey, I had a question for you. First off, do you even know I'm a Christian? Have I lived in such a way that you know I'm a Christian? Yeah, I think you're kind of weird. Okay, we got that out of the way. You know, do I have a good reputation with you? Is there something I need to do? I, one time I was talking with uh, someone in, in my work, workaday world, job, and, and it had been the end of a long day, and I snapped at her. I was, I was frustrated. She was mean to me. I snapped back. I hung up, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so pick up the phone, call her back. 
and, and just asked her to forgive me. I think that scared her more than my response. She didn't know what to do with it. Was, Would you please forgive me? There's no excuse that I snapped. I didn't say anything that I shouldn't have said. I just was harsh in my word. So will you please forgive me? I want to be quick to do that. And she wanted to get off the phone as quickly as possible. But it's neat. It's, it opened up more in the relationship. How about self-willed? Do you have to have your own way at home? Mothers, fathers, children, siblings. Do you do this with each other? Children. Do you have to have your way when you're playing games, when you're doing things together? What about their friends and our family? Not quick-tempered. Are we quick to confess anger, not find an excuse for it? Do we love what is good? Do we wake up in the morning wanting to do good for others and serve others? Do we show impartiality? Are we looking to be set apart? Finally, are we controlling ourselves? Are we developing discipline in our life and self-control, especially, especially over our words and our tongue. And before I close, we've gone a little bit longer this morning. There's maybe some, especially in a room like this, that say, no, I've never really tried to do those things. I can't do those things. I don't want to do those things. That's because you aren't a Christian to begin with. You don't, you don't have the same expectation, same set of standards. And yet if you're here this morning and you've heard these things, it would be wrong of me to let you leave without warning you that there is a judgment coming for those who will not repent of their sins, who will not turn to Christ, who will not confess their sin. Because God, as we've read, is a just God. He's a God who will judge sin. He has offered forgiveness. He has offered it at the cross. But he will judge sin. And if you're here this morning, you have never cried out in need, confessed your spiritual poverty, and said, Lord, please forgive me for my sin. Please find myself, one of the other men here, or persons you might be sitting next to, we would love to talk to you about how you can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning of the high standard you have and expectation you have for leaders in the church. And if, Father, as we look at this list, as we see the weightiness of it, would we also contemplate how we can be growing, how we can be improving in our, with our families, in our relationships, in our workplaces. Help us to seek to do good. We pray these things in your name. Amen.